Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me from via Zoom from Anaheim, California, is Dr. Ryan Godfredson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's so great to connect with you. Um, I'll give you a little bio on, on Dr. Godfredson. He's the Assistant Professor of Organized Organizational Behavior and the Assistant Director um, will you tell us the name of the college? I'm going to let you say that and what college it's at. Yeah. So I'm, uh, in fact, we just had a name change oh, at good. our college. Update so I, this. I those of you have maybe a, just a little bit dated, which is fine. So I'm at California State University Fullerton uh, at the business school there. So it's the College of Business and Economics. And I honestly, I didn't know anything about Cal State Fullerton when I applied. I only applied because it's closest to where my wife's father lived at the time. And uh, what I've come to learn and what we are now is we have the second largest business school in the United States. Wow. So we have a huge operation, about a fourth of the university, uh, almost 10,000 business school students uh, are, are there. And so it, it's, a, it's a big and it's a fun place to be a part of. Uh, tell our listeners where you got your PhD from and what focus. Yeah, so I did my undergrad at Brigham Young University in finance and then did my PhD at Indiana University in organizational behavior and human resources. And then my dissertation was on leadership, and that's what I focus on now. And so um, I came across an article recently that's actually five years old from Leading Saints that is authored by Ryan. It's called The Root Cause for Why Members Leave the Church and What Leaders Can Do About It. It's a terrific article. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, that'll be kind of the the, but this is a this is a podcast. So if you're kind of in the middle of a faith journey, a faith crisis, Ryan will give some vocabulary around that. This podcast might help you. Um, if you're a local leader, a parent, um, anybody that has stewardship responsibility for other Latter Day Saints, even a friend of another Latter Day Saint, I really believe, and that's our prayers. This podcast will help you give tools to help others. My experience in a couple of Twitter polls I did, I did some Twitter polls. Ryan, not very scientific, but I've done this a couple of times. If you're in a faith crisis, um, are you trying to find a way to stay or trying to find a way to leave? In both polls, over 80% says, I'm actually trying to find an authentic way to stay, um, but honestly deal with the things I'm processing. And often then those people need leaders and friends and parents with a different type of tool set. I've always felt um, the tools that we use to help somebody join the church may be completely different tools than we use to help someone stay in the church. Um, and so I think Ryan will go into some of those tools and sort of set up um, some of the framework um, why someone is considering leaving the church. But I want to just step back a little bit and realize that Ryan's coming this uh, from an active Latter-day Saint. He, in this Leading Saints article, he's vulnerable about some of his own questions in his faith journey. He's an active Latter-day Saint, as I mentioned. But he also has this academic and professional background, including working for Gallup. And I'm sort of a marketing researcher by trade, and so I'm drawn to people that take the time to sort of really peel back the onion and figure out what's going on. It's sort of like a simple analogy is if you get a bunch of people that still like Oreo cookies and they're speculating on a group of people that no longer like Oreo cookies, it's it's probably good to talk to the people that no longer are eating Oreo cookies versus sitting and speculating what's going on. And that's what Ryan will do for us. Is, is that okay for a setup, Ryan? That's perfect. Love it. So I'll just kind of let you start wherever you want to start in this 
discussion. And Ryan will also talk about a book he's written that we'll link to in the show notes that's just come out. It's The Elevated Leader. It's kind, it's kind of a business leadership book, but it's kind of like seven, the six or seven habits um, that Steve Covey wrote, the principles of this book. And I think Ryan will get into that apply to us as Latter-day Saints and our families and our circle of influence to just help other people. So now I'm going to let you go, Ryan. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I feel a little bit drawn to to share a little bit about my experiences in the church. Um, and and we call it a faith crisis. I've actually come to not see it as a crisis, and, and we'll, we'll get into that. But but it, that doesn't mean it was easy at the same time. So I, at the time, I was living in Indiana, and I was the ward clerk. And I, up until this time, I think I was like the most gung-ho, car-carrying member of the church. Like it, it was just, uh, I, I loved my mission, loved everything about it, always wanted to serve. I wouldn't necessarily say that I had aspirations for leadership in the church, but I think I would welcome any, any opportunity to serve. And, and uh, this opportunity to serve as a ward clerk came up. And, and while as a ward, ward clerk, one of my responsibilities was to take notes at disciplinary councils if they happened to occur. And I had never been a part of a disciplinary council before. And we had two in one month uh, that, that popped up. And, and we had a fairly young bishop and a rab, rather novice bishopric. I think everybody on the bishopric, the bishop, the two counselors, this was all of their first disciplinary councils. And, and I'm not sure in hindsight, that they prepared very well, and they surely didn't receive any training on how to deal with these. Both of these instances dealt with uh, women who uh, had, in kind of the church's vernacular, had committed adultery. Um, And and so they they were brought into these disciplinary councils because they had, on their own, kind of confessed to the bishop, and the bishop said, okay, we're going to have to go through a disciplinary council here. And, and what I was instructed as a ward clerk, who I also didn't know necessarily what I was doing, is they just said, you can't say anything, but you have to take notes and take minutes of what transpires. And so I'm essentially sitting there as a fly on the wall. <clears throat> and what I observed in both of these disciplinary councils was what I considered to be a rather, um, rather grueling interview with these women where these there's four men in the room with a lone woman and they're being asked to rehash maybe the most shameful event of their lives in, in an environment that I didn't feel was very safe. Uh, I didn't feel like the bishopric members handled it in a very emotionally intelligent way. And I, I, after those transpired, I felt lost because I was now, this was putting two things that I believed in, up against each other, which is, I believe that in the kind of the phrase whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies. And I also believe in treating others with love, compassion, charity, and, and creating a safe space for people in the church. And, and these two things came directly in conflict with each other. And I, I just didn't know what to do with that at the time. And, and what it did, and now I look back on it, literally what this is, is what we would call actually a heat experience. Now, heat experiences are just like this. They don't have to transpire always in this fashion, but they're experiences that cause us to question our core beliefs. 
And this was, to me, it was a heat experience. And I think anybody who's gone through a faith crisis, I think that they would also say, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this, Richard, I think they would also say that this was a moment when they were awakened. Would you relate to that? Yeah. In, from I mean, your perspective? Very much so. I like the vocabulary heat experience. And as, as I shared with listeners, I think I had that um, in my mid fifties, you know, it's roughly been nine years ago in my, why I say Simon, I just listened to gay men. A few in my word tell me about being gay and I, the fairness and the, and the reality of the road they walked, something they couldn't choose and unchoose sort of hit me. And I, I realized in a moment of rebuke of the spirit that I had let straight people con- totally define this group for me without taking the time to listen to queer Latter-day Saints. And so I liked the experience, a heat moment, but it caused some dissonance for me that I had never felt before and didn't have the tools to sort of process. Well, and I get the sense, of course, this is really our first time talking personally, but I get the sense that um, you came out of that. You, you have now kind of got beyond kind of the motion, the conflict, not that there isn't still conflict, but I, I get the sense that you would probably consider yourself, as you compare yourself now to back then, a more mindful and conscientious person than what you had been previously because you had been through this heat experience. Yeah, I mean, I would hope so. Others would probably have to judge that, but it certainly caused me to get out of my privilege bubble. I've been reading a lot about privilege and um, the station I enjoy is a Latter-day Saint male and my age and my experience, um, just everything about my experience as a Latter-day Saint is privileged. And what am I going to do to understand people that don't have the same privilege and use my privilege to amplify their voices? So it really opened a um, a paradigm shift for me that has helped me grow, hopefully, and become a better disciple of Christ. I love I love the word that you use paradigm shift and, and and it isn't until one goes through this something like this where they literally awaken or have this paradigm shift that they are able to put themselves in a position where they can recognize and so I would say you're very conscious and mindful I could recognize I come from a very privileged position and there are pros and cons to that And I also recognize that I can, maybe I could help others who may not be as privileged, help them navigate the dynamics that that they are having to navigate. Um, It really takes, it really takes people who have been through heat experiences in the past to get into that place. And in my opinion, and uh, um, my opinion is that that transition is literally a transition of becoming more Christ-like, um, more, more compassionate. You think about Christ, the, like the woman at the well, to me, is, is one of those stories. Um, and and it, we just recognize that all, not all members of the church would operate in the same manner that Christ did with the woman at the well, myself included, okay. right? So, um, so to me, to me that that's one of the benefits of going through these types of experiences. But but maybe it might be helpful to kind of even put some some classifications or even context around that. Do you do you care Agreed. if we do that, Richard, Please. or any other thoughts you want to no, share? That's great. 
So uh, the, what I'm speaking about is I have been on a deep dive over the last um, really six, seven years in terms of my profession about studying. So I came out of my doctoral program and, and studied leadership. And what I took away as I had to review the last 70 years of leadership research is that there's been one primary question that's been asked. And that question is, what do leaders need to do to be effective? And while, while that's led to a variety of really good answers, that never really sat very well with me because I don't know about you, Richard. I think about leadership is, is not about just doing the right things. It's about being a certain type of person. And so for the last eight years, I've been trying to study how do we tap into the, the being element of leadership? And one of the first places that this took me was to look at mindsets. So when you talk about paradigm shifts, that's exactly what I was studying is how do we help people shift their mindsets or their paradigms to become more positive and more aligned with leadership effectiveness? So that, that's where I've been. But then about two and a half years ago, I stumbled across a concept that I had never heard before. And so I'm gonna, I'll ask you if you've ever heard of this concept before we, we chatted before this. But had you ever heard of the term vertical development? I have not. Okay. So most haven't. But the concepts, the, the term vertical development has been around for about 10 years. But the concepts behind it actually date back over 50 years. And the idea is that there's two forms of development, two ways that we can improve ourselves. One is called horizontal development. This is what we're typically used to. Horizontal development is gaining knowledge and skills. Like you think about high school classes, college classes, I would even argue the vast majority of church talks and classes are about here's what you need to know and here's what you need to do. That's all horizontal development. And I'm not saying that's bad. I think that's good. It's a lot like adding an app onto an iPad. Right? When we add an app onto an iPad, we broaden that iPad's functionality. And that, that's good. That's beneficial. But we got to recognize the limitation of that is if we just add an app onto an iPad, that doesn't necessarily make the iPad operate any more effectively. And if we want to do that, which I happen to believe is the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to help us to upgrade ourselves to become more like Jesus Christ then we need to focus on a different form of development that's called vertical development. So vertical development is all about upgrading our own internal operating system. And when we vertically develop, we it's the process by which we develop, I would say, higher level and Christ-like characteristics, things like patience, empathy, charity. In a business context, I'll talk about emotional intelligence, psychological flexibility, intellectual humility. Um, if we want to develop those types of characteristics, we aren't going to do that just by adding knowledge and skills. We've got, to we've got to do something different, and that's what vertical development is all about. So before I dive even further on how we do that, does, does that make sense that, to you? That does make sense. I love the iPad analogy of adding more apps, which I get. And then I love the vertical development of getting a bit, you know, better processor, better operating system so that then you can grow upwards. But it sounds like it's a whole different set of skills that you have to do. But I love some of the words you put on there, like emotional intelligence, some of the examples that I 
hope you dive into because we don't talk about those in our faith community. In fact, I didn't even heard of the word emotional intelligence till a, a year or two ago. So, but you had a whole string of things there that I think are part of this vertical development that helps us be better disciples. Yeah. Well, and, and um, yeah, I love that. Become better disciples. So here's, here's what comes out of this. So to give you a short history lesson, these concepts, the concepts of vertical development comes through the focus of developmental psychology or the field of developmental psychology. The field of developmental psychology has been around since the 1880s. And from the 1880s until the 1960s, the primary focus was on child development. Because we could literally see children develop right before our eyes. It's one of the you know, most beautiful things that we see. But and what, we've, what they identified is as children go from infants to adulthood, they go through different developmental stages, and they do so rather automatically. It's essentially a function of age. But in the 1960s, some select developmental psychologists started to ask the question, well, can adults develop? And if so, do they go through different developmental stages? And what they found is that, yes, adults can develop. And, but, and there are three different developmental stages, primarily. And that what they've also found is that most adults actually don't develop in adulthood. Interesting. So what they found is that there's these three levels, and I'll, I'll introduce these here in just a second. But what they found is that across a pop, the kind of population, 64% of all adults stay at their base level of vertical development. 35% go up to the second level. And only 1% gets to the third level. And, and so if we could walk through those, I think ultimately what we'll find is that third level, you'll see a lot of the Christ-like attributes that we aspire to are, are housed there. Um, I also think we'll, it'll help us better interpret where faith crises come in and also why some of the dynamics navigating the church socially pop up. So does that sound all right if we Sounds dive into great. those? I think you've got a lot of listeners very interested right now. <laughs> all right. So, and let's just say if I'm a mind 3.0 person, which I don't think I'm there yet, I, I'm aspiring to that. If I'm a mind 3.0 person, I, I have been at mind 1.0. Like we, we go through these stages sequentially. And in some ways, there's a lot of overlap between this framework and Fowler's stages of faith, if anybody's familiar with that. Uh, but, but they are distinct and different. So at the, at the first level, I call this mind 1.0. The second level, mind 2.0, third level, mind 3.0, because at each level, our body is programmed to fulfill different needs. So at this first level, the needs that our body is programmed are is to be safe, to be comfortable, and to belong. And, and when we are at mind 1.0, one of the things that we are wired to do with these needs of safety, comfort, and belonging is we want to join groups or tribes, or I'll add in this context, churches or religions that help us to feel safe, comfortable, and like we belong, right? When we're here, we kind of step into the group and we say, I don't want to take charge here, but I'll let you tell me what to do, and I will go and do it provided you keep me safe, comfortable, and feeling like I belong. 
And so when we operated this mind 1.0 level, we're wired to stand in is what maybe one of the ways to think about it. Like in my mind, it's like if we're penguins, we want to be in the center of the huddle. That's kind of how our wiring is. That makes sense to you, yes. that, that first level there? Absolutely. So that's mind 1.0. Mind 2.0 is you're going to see a radical shift in our needs. No longer are we wired for safety, comfort, and belonging. We become wired to stand out, advance, and get ahead. And in fact, we're willing to be unsafe, uncomfortable, and not belong in order to stand out, advance, and get ahead. So when we get to this level, we're actually willing to push back against our tribe's beliefs, and we kind of develop our own independent beliefs. Um, and oftentimes, these are the types of people who they, they are inclined to step into leadership positions because they want to use the power and independence of those in mind 1.0 to help them stand out, advance, and get ahead. So when I think about my church experience, there's been, you know, different bishops or elders corn presidents that I've had where they're really gung-ho, or mission presidents even, they're really gung-ho on the numbers, right? It's, we need X number of baptisms. We need uh, X number of percentage of temple recommends holders or X number of percentage of, you know, home teaching or ministering visits, right? To me, that's a signal. When we're really focused on outcomes, that's a signal of leaders operating at the second level. And not, not that it's terrible that they're doing so, right? In fact, it's a, it's a step above the mind 1.0 level, but it, it does have some negative ramifications. Oftentimes, what comes about in these situations is if certain people don't hit certain numbers, there's a decent amount of shame that pops up. Um, uh, as a result of that. So, so that's the mind 2.0. Does that make sense? Yeah, it to you? does. Now, I, before I get to the third level, I want to step, kind of just step back for a moment and just kind of, uh, and I'll, I'll be interested in your answer to this question. When you think about most leaders in the church, and maybe let's even say bishops, what would you say is their primary focus? I would say it's, um, that's a good question. I think um, a focus would be to help people keep their covenants is one of the things that we talk a lot about in the church. So um, to do things and say things, provide programs that help fellow members keep covenants and stay close to God and on the covenant path. I think to help members feel like they belong. Um, that their voices are needed. I think some bishops do that better than others. I think a lot of bishops are um, busy with just all the things that they need to do, just with all the things that fill up their schedule. They may not sit back and actually think about the very question you asked, <laughs> um, like kind of like a business owner would or a, somebody who's re responsible for the strategic direction of an organization. I've had, I'm thinking, more, I've had some wards where the bishops had a goal and a focus, um, and ward conference often reinforces that, it, and some wards where there is no such sort of focus, and I'm not sure one's better than the other, but just kind of back, come back to your question of focus of a bishop. Yeah. Here's my perception, and nothing, you didn't say anything that was wrong, but I will say I do think that 
when when we ask bishops these this type of a question, they will speak more to their ideal, and it's not quite how they operate. That's interesting. And and here here's how I see how many leaders in the church operate, and it's understandable. Um, but I would say my perception is that many oper- leaders operate in a way of how do I avoid having any problems? I think that's true. Right. And, and how, do I, how do I limit how much time maybe I have to devote to, to this calling? How do I, and oftentimes what comes out when leaders lead from the space is what does the handbook say? We've got to follow the handbook. And it's, there's some even leaders that are like, they kind of think the more closely I'm aligned to the handbook, and there's nothing wrong with being aligned to the handbook, by the way, but if if their priority is, if I the more closely I'm aligned to the handbook, the better I will be perceived as a leader or even the how happy the church will, will, will be with me or even further, the more I'm aligned with the handbook, the more... Christ might be ha- happy with me, right? Right. And and but but if if we lead from that space, we're really operating in that mind 1.0 level. I and another label I use for mind 1.0 is good soldiers. We operate as good soldiers. Mind 2.0, they're progress makers. And when we operate as a good soldier, our focus ultimately isn't about the people we're serving. It's to what degree am I being perceived as a good leader? To what degree am I comfortable? To what degree am I following the handbook or whatever that might be, or the, the instructions of my leaders? Um, so there, there's nothing inherently wrong from operating in this place, although we're limited. And, and, and I'll, I think we'll see that as we jump into this mind 3.0 level. So mind 1.0, we are kind of wired to want to stand in. Mind 2.0, we're wired to want to stand out. At Mind 3.0, our needs again shift really dramatically. Our needs are, are to contribute, add value, and lift others. And this is a huge shift because when we operate below this level, our body is wired to be focused on ourselves either standing in or standing out. It's only when we get to this third level do we now become wired to go outside of ourselves, to contribute, to add value and lift. And the people that operate that, that are operating at this level, they have a tendency to be, well, here, here's another way to say it. My, people at Mind 1.0 are dependent thinkers. People at Mind 2.0 are independent thinkers. And people at Mind 3.0 are interdependent thinkers. They like to take in multiple different perspectives. They like to sit in complexity and messiness, right? So when you tell me your story about having conversations with people who have a different sexual orientation than you, that's, that's to a certain degree demonstrating a sense of I'm willing to step into the messiness of this because this is surely not clear cut. It is not clean, and there is a lot of pain in this space, and I'm willing to step into it. So that's one of the one of the aspects of Mind 3.0. Another aspect is we have a tendency to be more long-term focused. Um, people in Mind 1.0 or Mind 2.0, they want to stand in or stand out right now. People in Mind 3.0, 
They don't care about standing in or standing out right now. They're invested in creating an environment of growth and fulfillment for the long term. And I think this is a place where um, I, I think if I'm just going to be honest, I think leaders in our church, primarily bishops, really struggle in this space. Because um, I would classify, one of the ways that I classify uh, mind 3.0 leaders is that they're gardener-minded leaders. Uh, are you much of a green thumb, Richard? Um, yes. All in, right. In a very unique way. <laughs> okay. So let me, I, I'm not, so let me throw some things at you. You tell me if I'm wrong, but here's what I think about gardeners. Gardeners understand that they cannot force a seed to sprout, a plant to grow, or a tree to bear fruit. True. And gardeners understand that if they want a seed to sprout, a plant to grow, or a tree to bear, grow, bear fruit, they need to create the conditions under which those will occur. True. And then the better the conditions, the better the growth and the greater the yield. True. So from this perspective, what, what we're seeing these days, in my opinion, is, is we are seeing a higher percentage of people leaving the church. True. And, and there is some generational differences for this. So a lot of people compare like the boomers to the millennials or to the Gen Zers. And most of that comparison is not actually generational difference. Most of that comparison is just age differences. Boomers were the same as Gen Zers when they were the same age. Um, they, they've just adapted over time. But there are a few gen, actual generational differences. And one of the most primary actual generational differences is degree of loyalty. So what we find is millennials and Gen Zers are much more likely to talk with their feet at this age than their predecessors at this age. Interesting. They're more willing to leave organizations, leave brands, or even leave churches if, if, they, if things aren't going well for them. And so I'm going to put this in terms of a, a business context, and I think we can make some church applications to this. But I think a lot of leaders in businesses and the work that I do, they kind of, when they go out and try to hire somebody, they kind of take the mentality of, all right, I'm hiring you to help me out. But I think the best leaders, they say something different. They say, and these Mine 3.0 leaders, they'll say, I'm hiring you and I'm going to help you be as successful as you can be. Wow. And I inherently know that the more successful you are, of course, I'll be successful. But that's not where my focus is. My focus is not on my success. My focus is on your success. And so that's why I say Mind 3.0 leaders are gardener-minded leaders. They are deeply invested in how do I create the right culture for the people to grow and to bear fruit. And I think the general mentality of most church leaders is, this is our garden. You either figure out how to survive within it, or you're going to get lost. And what we, don't, what we fail to realize is, look, we've got in our garden as a leader, we've got orchids, we've got uh, succulents, we've got rose bushes, we've got you know, fruit trees. We've got pine trees, and all of these 
require different levels of sunlight, water, and nutrients. Oh, I love that. And we, we, in my opinion, we just struggle to, to nurture some of these different types of flowers or trees. And they, they end up kind of being just collateral damage because and one of the reasons why is because we're a little bit more focused on us doing what we feel like is right or according to the handbook. And that oftentimes impedes us from, from stepping outside of that bubble and, and reaching out to, to the people who aren't getting the nutrient sun or water that they particularly need. Uh, that really resonates with me. And I love the way everything you put in the garden is needed. You didn't put weeds in there or anything that you would infer wouldn't be needed. Everything you put in that garden is needed to make the garden more beautiful versus just one type of thing. So I love the yeah. visual imagery of not sameness being Zion, but all the things in the garden that are very different, have very different needs, but very different gifts to bring beauty to the garden. The garden is not sameness. The garden is what you described. Here's what popped in my head as you said this, and maybe this, I, hopefully this comes across okay, but I think in some ways it's interesting because if you've got like a rose bush and, and then, which are very pretty, right? But then there's also a cactus in the garden. I could very well see a rose bush being like, what are you doing in my garden? What are you doing in this garden? And the cactus is thinking, well, you've got thorns just like I do. Right. And that's, that's a dynamic that I think, you know, I think is observable in the church. I'm not saying that that's everybody, um, but you get some really pretty people with some that have some thorns that they, maybe they don't recognize and they don't necessarily always do the best at making space for the cactuses that might be there that, that also ha equally have beautiful flowers um, type thing. And so that's, that's a dynamic that, and, and real, that goes back to where we started is the article that I wrote about five years ago is the, again, the title of that was the root cause for why members leave the church and what leaders can do about it. And, and, and what, what we've discovered over time, and even going back to the early history of the church is that, one of the primary reasons why people leave the church is because they feel like they've been unfairly treated by those in the church. And that just, and so if we've got statistics are saying one third of the members of the church who grow up in the church, leave the church uh, by the time they get, become adults. Um, we've got a lot of people leaving. And, and I think, I think one of the things, one of the reasons why is because we as leaders in the church and even just regular members, I'm not sure we're really concerned about cultivating an environment that is attractive to people who may not be mainstream members or even people outside of our church. Uh, and I mean, let me give you an example. I, I mentioned earlier that we've got a Halloween activity coming up in our ward. Um, and our, our bishop has slashed the budget for this activity. Um, and one of the rationale that was used for the budget slashing was, well, um, and by the way, this is our most well-attended non-member event of the year. We get more non-members at this event than any other event. And, and one of the rationale that was said was, well, 
we may get more non-members, but they never come back. And I'm thinking, no, like if we want, if we literally believe that people are better off in the church, we should invest in creating opportunities and activities and environments where people outside of the church feel comfortable participating with us. And, and by slashing our budget, I'm not sure that helps us to do that very much. Um, and so that's an example of where, you know, it is, I think as a whole, a personal belief of mine is we don't, we don't allow, we don't give wards enough money to, to create activities and events that are the types of events that others, particularly those outside of our church, would want to attend. Um, and that's, that's always a sticky situation because we're dealing with tithing and a variety of things. But, but I think I would like to see more leaders get into that gardener mentality. How do we create an environment where people who don't come to church that are members actually want to come to church? How do we create an environment where non-members want to come to church? Um, and, and I think we're just a little bit more focused on how do we stay safe, comfortable, and feel like we belong? And that's that mind 1.0 mentality. Yeah, I really um, agree with the mind one. And I think you're saying all three are valid. I don't think you're trying to create shame for people that are no. um, mind ones and kind of recognize that's me and not being twos or threes. I think you're trying to create grace for all of these, but just recognizes their differences. And, and maybe this helps some people consider, you know, can I um, vertically grow and become two and three? And would that help me as a disciple of Christ? But I do think culturally we're really good at belonging safe and some of the things. And I recognize maybe that's realistic because the world is divisive and hard and complex and we're exhausted, a lot of us. And by the time we come to church, we don't want, we want sameness. We want political sameness, belief sameness. We don't want to face the dissidents of fairness issues that some Latter-day Saints face and some that have left and sort of trying to figure the backstory. But I think we can grow. Um, all of us can grow to be beyond that. And I think that's what Paul represents in the body of Christ and our doctrine. So um, I'd love you to talk about the fairness, because if there's people that are sitting there not feeling fair, um, I'd love you to talk about why they're not feeling fair and what we can do to sort of validate. And even if we can't fix global churchwide fairness issues, you know, what we can do to still help them if they want to stay in the dissidence of unfairness how to do that yeah or anywhere you want to go (laughs) no that's that's great so i i've got as you mentioned i've got a couple of kids i've got a 10 year old and a seven year old and and it's it's annoying but it's also fun at the same time like children they wear their emotions on their sleeves so just literally the other day so here's the situation uh we took our kids out they got an award at school where they could get a free cookie from the local cookie store So we took him out and my daughter got a cookie and she ate it all that night. My son got a cookie. He ate half of it that night and he saved the other half for the next day. So the next day after dinner, my son eats his half of the cookie. And so my daughter says, well, do I get a treat? And I said, well, um, no, because you got a cookie last night. And she says, but he gets a cookie. Well, I said, well, you chose to eat, eat all of your cookie last night. Uh, and you you could have saved half of it for today if you wanted to. 
And she says to me, this is no fair. Right. And we, it's a pretty common statement that at least I hear my kids make. This is no fair. Um, and, and what they're expressing is something feels off here to me. And what, by, by saying this is no fair, what they're calling for is there, this is a call for attention. That, that there's, an, there's an underlying need here that isn't being met. And as a parent, I could dismiss this and I could ignore this and saying, you're just being childish. Or I could say, hmm, is there something else that's going on here? And actually, rather than kind of move away from my daughter because she's being childish, what if I moved closer to my daughter and said, hmm, I, you know, I understand how this feels. It doesn't feel very good, does it? Right? We sit with it. And that's what we we have a we have a hard time creating space within our normal church activities to listen to others, particularly those who are struggling with fairness or other related issues in the church. There is not a place in sacrament meeting to do that. There is not a place in Sunday school, elders quorum and relief society generally. Very rarely do we create a space because what we've got in a room, at least in my ward, is we've got 50 to 60 people in Sunday school. We've got one Sunday school class, and most of those people are not struggling with a faith crisis or related issue. And so if somebody were to bring that up, they're kind of like, eh, this isn't relevant to everybody else, when in reality it is. But but even when that is brought up, it's kind of like, oh, this is taking me on a different direction than what I had planned in my lesson. We're going to have to circle back to this at another time. So we really don't create great space to nurture and listen to people who are currently struggling, however that might be. And and I think that that's ultimately, and that's what I talk about in the article, is when we're struggling, I felt this way when I was going through my faith crisis, if you will, is I am going through this. This is really difficult. I have no clue who to talk to about it. And I don't know anybody who's been through something like this before. So one of the things that I did is I went to my best friend and I said, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I didn't approach him in the best way, right? I was a little antagonistic myself. Like, and I said, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been looking into some things. Here's some issues that I have with the church. And he just essentially said, I'm going to paraphrase. He essentially said, you're wrong. You got to follow the prophet, read the scriptures and pray more. That was effectively his response. And I just left that thinking, I didn't have a friend here. I didn't have somebody that would listen to me. That doesn't mean that he has to agree with everything that I, that I say, but, but if we can feel heard and validated, that will resolve most of the issues. It wasn't until I moved to California from Indiana that I had a member of my ward who at the time I didn't know this. He's now since come out as uh, having same gender attraction. He's married to his wife. Um, but at the time, he he's been through the ringer, right? If, if that's the case, he's been through the ringer. And he, came, he was able to take me under his wings and just listen to me. Wow. He didn't judge me. And, and I would say that is the thing that helped me 
the most is just having somebody I could communicate my feelings and emotions to and be heard. Not that he had to agree with everything, but he was all just by me unloading. I just felt, oh my goodness, I don't have to carry this weight. Not that he had to carry it, but it just felt like the weight left. And and so we got to figure out ways, and I don't know the solution, but we got to figure out ways to help people kind of voice their feelings, their struggles, and their insecurities. And we need to create a place where people can be vulnerable with that. And I'm not so sure that we find that very commonly within our regular church activities. Um, I love that segment, Ryan. I'm grateful for you being honest just about some of your own experiences. I think that resonates with listeners. This isn't just theoretical for you and you've got academic expertise. This is real life. And I think for me and for many of the listeners, there's real life difficult experiences. And then we don't know who to open up to. I mean, this sort of happened to me when I was a YSA bishop. And who am I going to open up to? The YSAs? <laughs> um, my priesthood leader? This isn't supposed to happen. And um, kind of navigated that. I have a good wife who I was safe opening up to and uh, uh, another priesthood leader in a different area that I was friends with that was helpful. But I've thought a lot about, you know, how do we create these safe places? And you may have some ideas, but I think, I think as parents and leaders, we can, in our chances when we have to talk, is, say, is talk about this. This is good members of our church have honest questions about faith. Some would call it a faith crisis or a faith journey or falling forward or upward. And this yep. is a good thing. And if you're going through this, I, I want you to talk to me about it. And this is how I'll respond. I will listen. I will validate. I will support. I will be there in a non-transactional, non-judgment way. And I think, you know, we can, if we're in a position of having stewardship over people as a leader or a parent, we can talk in advance how we'll handle conversations so that people know in advance, okay, I can talk to the second counselor in my bishopric. It's, it's not really a priesthood interview. It's just, I know he's a safe person that's in my faith. Um, because as you know, a lot of people then find community of people outside of their faith that are glad to talk about these things. And you need to find your tribe and a place to belong. And if the only people that'll talk about this stuff are people out, you may conclude, even if you have a fundamental testimony of the restored doctrine, you're out. <laughs> so I know in your article, you suggested even doing classes, evening classes. I don't know if you want to talk about more ideas of what we can do to help people, um, just more ideas that come to your mind. Well, I, well let me just point out, I, I love your idea of a, a leader, a bishop, an elders quorum president, a release society president being willing to be vulnerable themselves and say, look, I recognize that people have struggles. I've had struggles. Here's what they are. I want to create a safe space for you. I think one of the things that's challenging, this is, this is one of the things that rubs me maybe the, the wrong way with the church is, honestly, I, I really dislike fast and testimony meetings <laughs> um, because it's a celebration of certainty. Wow. And just not everybody is certain. And, and I don't think that certainty should necessarily always be celebrated because unfounded certainty can be really bad. Um, and, and so that's a practice that I, I'm not sure sets the right tone for vulnerability in, in my opinion. So, 
Um, maybe that's that's my soapbox uh, on that. But I, I do think that an elders quorum president, for example, could create, I don't know, a book club type atmosphere on a on a occasional basis, a monthly, weekly basis. Um, that that's more informal. I think one of the things that I see in my ward, and I don't know exactly how the church's stance is, and I know it differs geography, um, but I would say in my ward, in elders quorum, we have a rather big elders quorum. So it's like 30 to 40 members that'll show up. And of those, I would say in my ward, 75% of them are over the age of 60. Um, so there is a there, a small minority younger population that really gets overshadowed because some of the older members of the church are well experienced in the church, high councilmen, former bishops, mission presidents, even state presidents, and they have a tendency to hog the airtime, if you will. Um, and and I think I think it would be appropriate personally, um, and of course, local church leadership may disagree. Uh, that they could create multiple elders quorum classes. Um, and maybe you don't do it every time, but occasionally allow them to split up into smaller groups and facilitate different types of conversation that meets the different needs of, of, that, of that particular group. Um, you know, for example, I could see, for at least in my ward, where we've got a little bit more of a senior population, how, how do we navigate the struggles of getting older and losing some of our functionality, either physically or mentally. Like, I think that could be a really beneficial thing for, for some people. I'm not sure I would love to be a part of that conversation, but I would love to be a part of other conversations such as, um, how do I operate as a more emotionally intelligent father? Wow. Um, how do I better meet the emotional needs of my spouse and children? Right. Or, or, or even just how do I navigate what, what I found, for example, is that business professionals in their 40s, that's the hardest decade for them because their kids are of an age where they're really busy. Work is really busy. It's kind of the age of promotion. And therefore, there's a ton of weight on people in their 40s uh, on their shoulders. And, and how can we better navigate that decade more effectively? All right. So that that's one idea is whether it's informal outside of church hours or something splitting up classes and making smaller groups. I think that doing something like that uh, could could go a long way, um, because if we want people to here's what I've learned from Gallup, um, my experience there. So if, if people aren't familiar with Gallup. Uh, Gallup goes into organizations they, and they assess employee engagement. And they have a measure that's called the Q12. They have 12 questions that they use to assess engagement. And what Gallup will say is all of these are really critically important for engagement. Well, when I got there, I got my hands on as much data as possible. And I wanted to answer the question, if I could focus on one or two of these questions, which ones would be the most important for me to focus on for engagement? And I found that there's two that are really important for, for slightly different reasons. So one of them was um, the, the item is somebody at work cares about me as a person. If someone gave a, um, 
if someone gave a one through four on a five-point scale on that question, only 11% of them were engaged at work. So if I don't strongly agree, then I'm not going to be very engaged. And that makes sense if somebody doesn't care about me as a person, right? The other item is, a, is an item that says, my opinions at work count. And if I give a five to that, if I strongly agree, 95% of people are engaged. So that means if we want our church members to be engaged, we need to make sure that they are cared about by somebody and that they have a voice that will be heard. And I think we do a little bit better job of the caring aspect um, as a whole, but that voice aspect is really tricky, particularly when we've got a relief society with 40 people in the class. How do you, how does somebody have a voice there? Um, and particularly when you've got already got the same five people who give 75% of the comments. Um, you know, those people are really engaged because they're talking all the time, right? But what about the introverts or the people who are just a little bit more quiet? Um, is there a way that we could draw out their voices? And I'm not sure the really large classes facilitate that aspect. That's a terrific segment and um, thoughts come into my mind. And I think if you're a local leader or I don't want to call you rank and file member, just a wonderful member. It's equal to a local leader. I think this is really good. What can you do in your circle of influence? I would think that going from three hours to two hours um, and the size of those classes has created a lot of people that leave church feeling not heard and not a format to be heard. And I have felt that in my own elders quorum. Um, when I came back from my YSA assignment, we were still split with elders and high priests. And I'm a high priest and I came back to my ward and I just gradually drifted to elders quorum, even though I was too old. I didn't really want to say anything, Ryan, but I just was drawn to the quality of the conversation. Um, mm. And not to say the men my age weren't having quality conversations, but I sort of cynically branded it the best answer club at times, where those that yep. sort of had the best answer um, shown, and there wasn't much of a culture for asking honest questions. Um, there was more of a culture for having the answer, and we just kind of pop from answer to answer. And and I don't want to be critical of my ward or wards in general, but I think a lot of people are looking for this kind of content, and I've wondered how to do that. And yeah, we're one elders quorum now, but I've never, I don't know, somebody may know in the handbook, but it's, it's an interesting thought where you could start elders quorum together, go through the announces, and then just quickly divide the room. And um, this is what we're going to focus in this class, and this is what we're going to focus in this class. And it would give more people a chance to teach. Our Elders Quorum does a really wonderful thing. We don't have a set teacher. Um, so each, you know, every week, somebody different is teaching. And I think that was a really thoughtful thing that was done when our Elders Quorum combined, because obviously there's, we have a big Elders Quorum, 50, 60, 70 people. And I think all of those people are qualified to lead a lesson. And mm -hmm. so I like that that's happened, and that's just an idea that's happened. And our our release society, I believe, does the same thing. But I just think it's worth reflecting as a ward council or a presidency. You know, what can we do? Because part of belonging in any of those stages is feeling like you have a voice. And what you 
and you have a way to share your thoughts. And testimony meeting is a way to do that. Um, but what are some other ways to do that? And and could there be other things done outside of the Sunday block for those that want to be engaged? Our ward started empty nesters for people like me and my wife. And I'm not quite sure I'm ready to be an empty nester because I still think I'm of a millennial spirit stuck in a, a boomer body, but because I'm just drawn to younger people and the uh-huh. things they want to discuss. But that's a really thoughtful thing just to have a community of people. Um, we had someone come to speak to our empty nesters whose wife is has Alzheimer's and he was talking about his journey with that. And, you know, some of us will be facing that in our own lives and our spouse's lives. So back to your point, that was a very relevant conversation, but it was done on an, on a weekday night. And so I just wonder if more of that can be done to address specific needs. Cause I love, I love your garden analogy and I love that there's different, um, things in the garden that are equally needed and, but they need different support. Um, and I do worry that people don't have a voice and, and they don't have a way to open up vulnerably about fairness issues or concerns, um, without shame and judgment and all the, you know, we just don't do a very good job of creating safe place for people to ask questions. Yeah. And so, so I think if, if I'm pulling a couple of things out of, out of our conversation is, is one is. For, for those who are listening who happen to be leaders is to try your best to operate as a gardener-minded leader. Cultivate the right conditions for the people with under your stewardship to thrive, um, right? And now let me give you an example. We, we talked about this just briefly. Is I, This happened today. My wife, before I came up the stairs to record this interview, um, my wife met with their young women's presidency today. Uh, she's one of the counselors. And they were talking about how there's a young woman who hasn't been regularly attending church. She hasn't been in a while. She came this last Sunday. She shows up at Sunday school and her Sunday school president or Sunday school teacher kind of says the snarky, well, it's been a long time since we've seen you. You know, where have you been? Like, and she breaks down in tears and just feels shamed of that. Mm -hmm. Like in some ways that teacher was well-intended but it was the exact opposite thing that needed to occur in that moment. It's not about where have you been? It's, oh my goodness, we have missed you. We, 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 have, we love you. Thank you for coming. Right. That's, that's the message um, that, that we want to send in those situations. And so, you know, who knows when this girl's going to come back to church now. Um, and again, it, it is, it is somebody who's well-intended, that completely missteps that situation. Um, and, and so that, that goes on. We recognize that that goes on. Yeah. That, that person needs to have a little bit of grace for that teacher, but although also that same, that teacher is in his fifties and this person is a teenager, right? We, we should have a higher bar for that person in their fifties and be able to navigate that situation more effectively. Like, I know that that teacher aspires to be a Christ-like individual, and this was the exact opposite of being Christ-like. Um, and, and so we all have our own room for growth and development. The more I learn about vertical development, the more I see my limitations. So the instances where I make that stupid comment that I shouldn't have made or, or whatever it might be. But, but what, I, what I also hope is we kind of laid out those principles of vertical development and those, those different levels is that if you're listening 
and you're struggling with your faith or something has come up or there's, you don't feel like you have a voice. One, while it's not easy, recognize that it's a stepping stone to actually becoming more like Christ. I, I, I don't, it, it's actually helping you bring you closer to him in the long run. Now, getting there for anybody is never going to be a linear journey. And we've got to create the space for kind of the down ticks. And as a parent, what I have to do with my children, which is way easier said than done, and my kids aren't even teenagers yet, is I've got to create space for their own down ticks to occur without freaking out. Um, And that that it's a stepping stone in their journey, and I've got to cultivate the right environment for them to thrive. So so hopefully this, uh, this helps both of those audiences, leaders, as well as people struggling. Um. Uh, if you've got some more time, talk about um, if I'm a mind one or mind two leader. Um, one of the principles of leadership, I guess, I picked up in in school was to surround myself with people that were different than me. And um, it was natural for me to want to be, if I'm a mind two people around mind two and call a presidency of mind two people. But it might be helpful even though it creates more uncomfort as a presidency to call people, if you think you got a mind three in your, you know, in your congregation, um, it might, I'm just kind of leading this question. Obviously I have an agenda here is to be open to call people in your leadership that are different than you. Um, and may in your combined efforts help you reach people in this cultivated garden that you're not able to reach any thoughts on that. And you probably see that in organizations. Yeah, and it, well, and it's it's hitting close to home with my ward. So, um, in our bishopric, we have essentially a white fifty-year-old male bishop. We have a white fifty-year-old first counselor, and we have a white fifty-year-old third counselor, or you know, se- or second counselor. And they are all very similar in their stances on things. In that, it's very much. Handbook driven. What are the rules? How do we how do we follow those rules? How do we stay in line? Um, and that's that that creates a certain culture in the ward. And so I, I think that there's a lot to what you're saying. Now, here's what I also think is I also think our current bishop feels threatened by people who are different than him or who have different perspectives. And, and that means that he's coming from a place of insecurity, which is okay. We all have insecurities, myself included. Um, but if we want to develop as leaders, and if we want to become more Christ-like, we've actually got to be okay diving into and sitting with our insecurities. That's actually part of the vertical development journey. That's where the heat experiences come from, as we start stepping into our fears, our insecurities, even our past trauma as a way to ultimately heal ourselves. Um, and and that's, that's way easier said than done, uh, but, it, but it speaks to hopefully just kind of recognizing that's part of the journey is exposing ourselves to people who have different perspectives than us. Again, not that we have to agree with them, but that we are able to sit with them and hear them and validate their perspective. I love that. Um, I just... I think of 
the ability to be around people that are different than us and the combined effort, the combined um, ability then to reach people that we couldn't reach. It's synergy. I guess that's a Stephen Covey thing. One plus one equals three. And so I think as minister, brother, and sister, or my wife and I are minister, brother, and sister, I guess typically we don't have ministers that are men and women. Um, but if two minister men or two minister women, they may be able to do some things individually they couldn't do. But I think they we have to be more open with our differences and look at that as a good thing. I've, I think a lot about Zion, Ryan, that I thought it was just sameness. I've talked about this in the podcast. I grew up in a very homogeneous world um, that thought that's what Zion was. And I've recognized that Zion is not um, sameness, but it's being unified um, to bring people into Christ and to have a, a garden that cultivates that more people can come under Christ because of the culture we've created in our area of influences that isn't sameness. And it's, you know, belong and safe. And, and the third word you'd use here was certainly my life growing up. But I've, and I think of Elder Uchtdorf, you know, when you, when you talk of people that might be mind three, I think of Elder Uchtdorf. And um, I don't know if that's true, but he just seems to be operating at this level that I'm drawn to. I love what he says, you know, that there's no sign at the door that says our testimony should be this high to enter. And so he creates a feeling that everybody's welcome, everybody's needed. The narrowing of the gate occurs at the temple where there's temple recommend questions. But for our congregations, the gate's pretty wide. Um, yeah. And testimony meeting can sometimes create a feeling it's not. If it's if it's certainty, I did a Twitter poll once where I asked if you're an active Latter-day Saint and they could rank four things of their testimony. I know, I believe, I hope, I'm not sure. Less than half where I know. And these are people that have temper recommends. So I think there's a, just to go back to that one, I think if you're, and I believe the church is true, and you have a different spiritual grift that's never going to get you to where I know the church is true, and you just hear that for two decades of your life, you wonder, um, uh, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Um, do I belong here? Are my spiritual gifts really, you know, so I think we have to create, um, and part of that is back to you being vulnerable. So if people get up in testimony and says, I'm committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am keeping everything I can do, but I don't have an, I know the church is true. I believe, I hope I'm committed to our faith. My commitment level to faith is into, is sort of not directly tied into no, um, I can do that. Um, so just some thoughts about nuance that I really like. Um, my son, who I rarely, who I, you know, he's on Twitter and I, I retweeted him last night. Um, he writes, the more I'm unafraid of being wrong, the more stones I feel desire and freedom to turn and look under. And the more stones I turn, the more questions, answers, and wonder I find. And I thought, you know, this is a 25-year-old kid who's terrific thoughtful mindful wanting just his his wiring is i want to continue to learn he's growing vertically by giving him permission to be wrong and not yeah. living with certainty and i think that helps him and and that's why i'm, I'm pretty hopeful about the younger people in our world um because of the values they bring and their commitment to fairness which is a challenge right now in a lot of institutions uh, more thoughts that come to your mind. Um, I want you. I want listeners to be un- to understand the elevated leader. Just talk a little bit about it, that book, or any other things you'd like to share before we wrap up. Um. So the 
here's to to that point, and I loved what what your son said. By the way, is if we want to vertically develop, we've got to be in a space where we can question our own inspect and question our own mindsets. Now, our mindsets are mental lenses that we wear, and they shape how we view the world. So, for example, how do you see constructive criticism? Do you see it as an attack and therefore get defensive? Or do you see it as an opportunity to learn and grow and therefore embrace it? So, we all have mindsets, and our mindsets, for us, feel right. And But... Very few of us are willing to inspect and question our mindsets. And this is something that I've had to do, and particularly as I've written a book called Success Mindsets. Um, but I've, I do have a mindset assessment, and I've had 30,000 people take this mindset assessment. We assess four different sets of mindsets. And what I found is across 30,000 people, only 2.5% are in the top quartile for all four sets of mindsets. Mm. That means that most of us, myself included, have some mindset work to do, that we need to turn over some of these stones that we that feel right or feel comfortable to us, but may actually be leading us in the wrong direction. Um, and, you know, for example, I go back to this Sunday school teacher who kind of shamed this young woman who showed up. What drove him to joke about it as opposed to exhibit warmth there? That was ultimately founded on a mindset. And, and here's what I've learned for myself. And this is, we, we could have a whole other podcast on this, but to make the long story short is what causes people to have more negative mindsets as opposed to more positive mindsets. And what I've learned from, and I, and I, I didn't realize this when I first started learning about mindsets, but that our past trauma causes us to develop negative mindsets. Because the more trauma we experience, the more self-protective we become. We become more self-focused as opposed to other-focused. And that's that mind 3.0, right? Mind 1.0 is really self-focused. Mind 3.0 is really other-focused. And um, if you would have asked me, Richard, two and a half years ago, if I had trauma in my background, I would have said no, right? I was raised in the church. My parents were married. They went to every basketball game that I ever played in. But over the last two years, I've been engaging with a trauma therapist. And what we very early on discovered was that while my parents were always there for me physically, they were rarely there for me emotionally. Effectively, I was emotionally neglected as a child. And to me, that's just what I knew. So to me, that felt normal. But now that I've recognized this, that I, I grew up emotionally neglected, I see how that has its fingerprints on how I operate every day. Like I am a fiercely independent person. One of the reasons why is because as a child, if I wanted my emotional needs met, I needed to meet them myself. And I couldn't trust my parents or others to meet them for me. So I've also come to discover I have, a, I have an issue with trusting others. Um, and then that leads me to being less likely to be vulnerable than maybe, maybe other people, including my spouse and my children. So it shapes how I connect with, with my family members. And, and by awakening to this, 
what I what it's allowed me to do is to seek healing. Because if I could heal my body's nervous system, I could become less wired to self-protect and more wired to contribute, add value, and lift others. And so over the last two years um, of doing this trauma therapy, which to me is, it very much is my vertical, I've been working on my vertical development, is I feel by going through this process over the last two years, I have become more like my ideal self and more like my savior, even though I'm too far off to even acknowledge. Um, but I, I, I feel like I've made more progress in the last two years in that direction than the last 15 years of my adult life. Um, and, and I know that I am not alone or unique in having some of this. And what I, what I also recognize is not a lot of people operated like I used to, which is I don't have any trauma in my background when in reality they do. And the reality is, is that statistic says is that even one in six men have been sexually abused. And, it, and it's like one in three women. So if we think about our ward, just going off of those statistics, we've got, I don't know, a decent chunk, at least 25% of our ward has been sexually abused, let alone physically abused, emotionally abused, neglected, etc. And I think that church, our church can be a place for healing if we want it to be. Uh, and that's what a gardener-minded leader, I think, does is, is, is makes it a place for healing. That was a terrific segment. That's one of the best segments ever been done on this podcast. But thank you for being vulnerable and honest about trauma and having the courage. I mean, I think you give a formula there when you look inward and recognize yeah, I have trauma in my life and this is the source, but if I go to therapy and address it and sort of get beyond it, there's a lot of advantages to that. One is I'm less likely to pass that on generationally to my own kids if I work through that. And secondly, then it helps me to lift upwards. It's part of the personal growth I need to do to get past my own trauma. Um, that was a terrific segment, Ryan. And um, the source of that trauma, I think it's good to recognize the source of the trauma. Some people have church-generated trauma, a difficult leader, perhaps those women in that disciplinary council. Maybe they thought yeah. it was great and they're doing great, but maybe they thought and felt some trauma there. I know that you know people have what I call church-generated pain, and that gets and and that leads to a whole set of how do you turn back to your faith community if that's the source of the pain? Um, what happens to you on? Friday and Saturday night, if you're recognizing Sunday church coming up and you are filled with re the reality of the emotional feelings that come into you as you're faced with, um, you have a fundamental testimony of the doctrine of the church. We have concurrent with that. <laughs> and in the same reality, you have trauma um, because of X, Y, Z. And it's really hard to know how to work through that, to lean back in your faith community when it's the source of the trauma. And so that's kind of another podcast, but validating trauma. Um, and recognizing trauma like you have is a um, really important thing for us to grow as a faith community and to recognize that, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I like Sister McConkie's quote, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't marginalize people, people marginalize people, and we need to fix that. So in that marginalization umbrella, which is the difference between the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of a, a mortal organization, mortal people trying to implement it. 
Um, and I've made mistakes throughout my whole life as a, as a leader and as a parent. I know I've caused trauma in people's lives, but we've got to talk about how to say that's, that's a reality. Um, and how do we address that? How do we heal that? Um, therapy, um, I think Christ can help heal ourselves, but I think um, there's a role for therapy in that and some of the skills that a therapist can be to help us get through that. Any more thoughts on that? That was just a terrific segment. I didn't know you were going to give, and I'm glad yeah. you just gave that. That's great. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you for creating the space. Um, as you're saying that, I think I think it's also valuable to recognize members in our church, particularly those who are kind of generational members, carry generational trauma, right? Early church members were traumatized. <laughs> they were forced out of their homes. They went elsewhere. They went to a place where no one else, where nowhere, no one else lived as a place to settle, to get away from the trauma that they experienced. And, and that has influenced how the church and members within the church operate, that we are very self-protective collectively. We, we do have a tendency to create really big walls around us because it helps those on the inside feel safe, but we also don't understand that that also keeps out people and it keeps out ideas and, and things like that. So, so that I think if we are willing to recognize it, we're, we're able to see that there is generational trauma from that we collectively need to heal from. Um, that that there's some things that we just hold a little too tightly to because it helps us to feel safe and comfortable. And, and there's just some of those things that we need to loosen our grip on. And, and just being able to have that conversation of what are some of the things that we do hold too tightly to? Um, what do we need to loosen our grip on? And I think those types of conversations uh, could, could be really beneficial for creating to continue using the analogy, the the garden that that we really need to be. Yeah, I really love that. And you're getting my mind going now. I've I love this quote from Renee Brown, common enemy intimacy is the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share is simply we hate the same people, the bond we experience is intense, gratifying, an easy way to discharge our outrage and pain. And however, it's not fuel for real connection. I'm paraphrasing that, listeners, but it's pretty close. But I recognize that that's part of our culture, our generation trauma is we are under attack and we create community under that and political parties do that. But I think a holier, healthier way and to reduce anxiety and stress in our life is, you know, is to not go, we can have fact-based discussion about people in our faith and out of our faith in a different political party. People have left our faith without sort of reverting to some of the the language we've used that perhaps divides us and creates stress. I think we can, when we say, you know, we're under attack, I think we need to say who we're under attack from and what's the threat. Otherwise it's just this generic unsettling feeling um, that kind of causes us to go into mind one where we need to be belong safe. And we perhaps in going back to mind one, we create a garden that's not healthy for people that need the kind of tools that you're suggesting. So. You yeah. certainly got me thinking. Um, a couple well, things. I, let me, because uh, you mentioned kind of the idea of Zion, and this, this, uh, these three levels help me to to think about that. I think better, right? I think, I, I think it's normal. At least I used to think this way. Particularly when I would say I was really a rigid mind one person is 
that Zion is Zion is having a place where I feel safe, comfortable, and belong. And I don't. I've kind of come to learn that I don't think Zion is a place where we necessarily feel safe, comfortable, and belong. That that's just not our priority. I think Zion is a place where we collectively and interdependently wow. care about contributing, adding value, and lifting others. And wow. that that interdependence is so key that it's that we we need others to do that and those others may be very different than ourselves and in working with them it may feel uncomfortable unsafe and we may not feel like we belong necessarily but that matters less than contributing adding value and lifting others and to me i think that that's i feel like for me personally that's a better description of what zion is all about well, I think of that, and I've, our best definition of Zion is Enoch, who was such a Zion people who got translated. And I, I've thought a lot about one of the fruits of the city of Enoch, if, and I'm not a biblical scholar, listeners, is that there were no poor among them. And so I think of what you're describing, and I've thought a lot about the city of Enoch. I think it, um, five years ago, I just thought it was the same. But I think now it may be more what you just described, Ryan, is there were differences there. Um, there were probably different tribes that came together, different land feelings about land use, feeling difference about this or that issue of that day. But they were, you know, interdependent is the word that I love, that they were so, that they were where you described, that the that their garden was so healthy that there was no poor among them. And to me, that's symbolic for everybody feeling belonging and everybody um, feeling like their voice is valued and needed. and everybody feeling equal. Um, this fairness issue you talk about, we'll list, link to this in the show notes, your leading saints, the fairness issue, everybody felt fair. Um, so I think that's a vision of Zion. And so I think a lot about that. I, I wrote down a few thoughts, listeners, that have just, as Ryan's been speaking, um, the tradition of our fathers. I listened to a Faith Matters podcast, and I forgot his first name. His last name's Strong. Um, a mission president just talked about Sometimes the Book of Mormon talks about letting go the traditions of our fathers in a way that it's time to move on from some of those. Mm. Um, yeah. And that's kind of what you're inviting us to do at times, not change our doctrine. Um, this podcast and everything you said, I think, is consistent with our doctrine, but just being open to um, letting go of the traditions of our fathers as we move forward. I also like Jared Halverson, um, title of his talk at the Faith Matters Conference. He says, don't let a good faith crisis go to waste. And um, you're smiling on my screen. I love the this. that's sort of an intentional positive spin on something oh, yeah. that you're doing, obviously, in this podcast, to not look at faith crisis in that term in a negative way, but part of just your vertical growth that Ryan is talking about in a good thing. Falling upwards is a term that I've heard to describe and sometimes that's uncomfortable, um, but it allows you then to be able to perhaps reach more people than was ever possible in an earlier stage. So that's all I've got to say, Ryan. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with listeners? No, this is great. I mean, yeah, we've got, a, I think, a good mix of, of things that we've talked about um, and uh, that I hope will create, you know, a wide variety of listeners will be able to connect with. So hopefully that's the case. And uh, you know, would be happy to continue the conversation with anybody if they're interested. Oh, good. Well, um, you're 
thank you for your contributions in so many areas, professionally, academically, in our faith community. In this podcast, I think we just invite listeners to don't write 20 things down from a podcast you got to do. Just, I don't want to have you listen to a podcast and be overwhelmed with things you got to do. Just do one thing that you think might be helpful to you or your area of influence, your personal growth or how you can help others. And that's what I generally invite people to do. Uh, but anyway, this is Dr. Ryan Gottfriedson. And is that how I say your name right? Last name right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think I'm not sure if I pronounce it right half the time. So, Give us the uh, correct pronunciation. Gottfriedson is how I say it, but right. who knows if that's even right. There you go. Richard Osler and Ryan signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>